welcome to the Weird Warriors podcast. On this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this episode, we will be discussing Weird War Tales number 18. And this time around, we don't have any retroactive history to cover, so we're going to take a small podcast promo break before coming back and diving into the issue at hand. Greetings, guys and ghouls. I'm the Invisible Dan Cologne, and this is The Monsters That Made Us. Join Monster Mike Manzi and I on the last Friday of every month as we celebrate all of the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios' classic monster series. From the Phantom of the Opera to The Creature Walks Among Us, we sink our teeth into all the gory details as we dissect the films that gave us some of the most iconic movie monsters of all time. The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more information, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And we are back. So we are taking a look at Weird War Tales number 18. And Rich, as usual, is going to hit us with the cover detail. George Evans on art duties this time. The mystery and madness is still yours for 20 cents on a dark green cover. On a blank OD background, a running skeleton in a foreign military uniform thrusts his bayoneted rifle through the rifle a terrified American soldier is desperately trying to parry the blow with. Both combatants are completely entangled with barbed wire. Their uniforms are in tatters as a result and are surrounded by the detritus of past wars. Cover date, October 1973 on sale, July 7th, 1973. And I can't find any Killjoy, but maybe Max does. Well, I don't have any Killjoy per se. I I will say the drawing itself is great of the figures and of the various items and detritus at their feet. But for the first time, I find this image's use as a cover to be kind of dull and boring. The the utter lack of background detail really hampers it. And, you know, therefore a long string of silent covers that I was perfectly happy with ends right here. Just that blank green background does nothing for me. And it just seems like they could have put something to make it look more like a scene and it just falls flat for me. Poison gas. Sure. <laughs> World War One. Come on, work here. I actually spent a bunch of time trying to research what country the uniform that the skeleton is wearing belonged to. Uh, you want to assume Germany, but I kept getting you know the pickle halb helmets, uh, not ones with a plume. Uh, I finally figured it out it's a Prussian officer's uniform. The cuffs, epaulets, sash, and plume all fit. So yeah, quote quote Germany. Uh, the more you look, the more detail you see. The skeleton is wearing hobnailed boots. There's a crossbow underfoot, two knight's helmets, a mace, and all kinds of stuff you wouldn't expect to see in a World War I battlefield. Intriguing. I think I like this cover a little bit more than you did, but yeah, the background is a little non-existent. <laughs> yeah, it's just blank. It's like an actual green screen on a movie set, but they forgot to project anything onto it. So that's the cover out of the way, and I will dive into the first story in the issue, which has the awesome title of Captain Dracula. Max wants a vampire story? <laughs> Say it ain't 
so i mean a, a vampire story with that title too like I, i'm pushing people out of the way to get to the front of the line <laughs> so and it's a long one too folks it's uh 13 pages it's written by arnold drake art by tony de zuniga so two of our all-stars around here and the synopsis for this epic is as follows September 1943, Captain Paul Black is in command of an American army unit in Italy. The area seems somehow familiar to him. He's greeted by Angela Nero, mistress of Castello Nero, which is where Black's headquarters is going to be. She gives him a tour, and he discovers a painting of Giuseppe Nero, founder of the House of Nero, who looks a lot like Captain Black. He gets called out to eliminate a nearby pocket of heavy German resistance with his tanks. On his return, he meets the parish priest who tells him Nero, in Italian, translates to black. So <laughs> Paul Black invites him, invites the priest back to the castello to play chess. But Angela angrily kicks Father Giovanni out. The church had cast her family out 500 years ago, so she returns the favor now. Black later finds a crucifix the priest had dropped, but when he shows it to Angela, she recoils in horror from it. She apologizes, claiming much harm had been done to the family in the past by ignorance. Later, enjoying some wine to celebrate Black's victory, Angela and Paul are stunned when German Colonel Wilhelm Schlosser, the last commander of this castle, suddenly enters the room and advances on them. Black shoots him three times with his 45, but Schlosser keeps coming. The German grabs a mace, and Black grabs a broadsword to continue the battle. Black runs Schlosser through with the sword, but he still doesn't die. It isn't until Angela shoots him in the chest with an arrow that the German goes down. It's all very confusing to Black. It becomes much clearer when, anticipating a kiss from Angela, she instead bites him in the neck. She's a vampire. <laughs> Who could have seen it coming? And she's now infected Black. Schlosser had been an earlier victim who had come back to finish her. That explained her fear of the cross. It all added up. Captain Black's real quick on the uptake here. Uh, Black breaks the leg off a chair and ignoring Angela's temptations of power and eternal life, rams the chair leg into her chest, killing her. He has to stay behind locked doors during the day now, but he decides to take advantage of his curse and initiates night patrols against the Germans with his unit. Black takes the additional step of satisfying his craving for blood on any hapless German he comes across. To prevent his victim from later rising as a vampire himself, Black always finishes off his prey with a stake through the heart. This works well for several nights, until orders come down that an allied offensive is about to begin and all night ops must cease. No matter how hard he fights it, the bloodlust overwhelms Captain Black and he kills one of his own men to sate his urges. American guards see Black run off and open fire, thinking he's a German. Numerous hits don't stop him. Meanwhile, the Italian townspeople come with torches and crosses to the castle to celebrate Italy's surrender to the Allies. As Captain Black leaps from one tower of the castle to another in an attempt to escape, an ancient stone ornament collapses under his grasp. He falls to the courtyard and is impaled on one of the wooden crosses the villagers are carrying. No one can understand why Black killed one of his own men. 
Father Giovanni has a theory, but thinks it's better that the secret be buried with Paolo Nero. Uh, the end of Captain Dracula. We have no Killjoy was here for that one, but Rich has uh, a bit of a history minute to throw into the comments and commendations for you. Yep. Uh, less than a week after the Allies invaded Italy proper on September 3rd, 1943, Il Duce Benito Mussolini was overthrown and replaced with Marshal Pietro Bagdoglio, who immediately switched sides and joined the Allies. The Germans turned on their former allies with a vengeance, occupying northern Italy and slaughtering thousands of Italian soldiers. Some of the most savage fighting in World War II would take place in sunny Italy. Salerno, Anzio, Monte Cassino. It wasn't until June 4th, 1944, that Rome would finally fall, and fighting in Italy would continue until right before VE Day. Winston Churchill supposedly called Italy the soft underbelly of Europe. Not so much, <laughs> but hey, to the story. Uh, page six, panels two and three. The shadows of Black and Schlosser fighting fall on a frieze of two medieval combatants using the same weapons that they are. Love it. And page 11, panel four, there's a circular panel of a blood-crazed Captain Black and something straight out of a horror book, Home Run. One gripe I have is that Arnold Drake constantly teases a link between Black and Castello Nero, but never formally seals the deal. I don't know. Maybe it's me. <laughs> it is. Uh, for my part, I'll say Captain Dracula is such a great title that it's a shame DC didn't make use of it as the name of a character from this point forward. I mean, they had I, Vampire, but, you know, nothing so cool, in my opinion, as Captain Dracula. Now, it was nice to, to read a story that actually seemed to obey some of the more classic rules of vampire legend, even if the undead Black was considering jumping into a river to escape at one point. But we'll get back to all that later on in the issue. I agree on all of your called out pieces of artwork, so I'll just add a few things. The opening shot of the skeletal host with the title written out in his shadow only makes me want a Captain Dracula series even harder. I, I got to keep harping on this title for many reasons, but again, they make such a cool case for having it be an opening graphic right there. To, to that point, the use of silhouettes and shadows throughout this story is fantastic. And on page 10, panel three, the German general is stabbed through the heart by Black with a sign that reads, do not enter. I thought that was nice. I noticed that. Nice touch. <laughs> uh, as for the Black and Nero connection you mentioned, yeah, they could have spelled it out a little more clearly, but I, I got this... Um, you know, I got the idea that Paul just likely had some European roots that he was unaware of. But it, like you said, they didn't really bring it home except with the one guy at the end calling him Paolo Nero, you know, it, but it wasn't made explicit. I still enjoyed the story enough where, oh, where, yeah. where none of that matters. <clears throat> and again, for the title alone and the do not enter gag, you, you've got me on a hook right there. So in my opinion, and I think in Rich's too, we opened with a heck of a good first story. So this is another issue where we only have two stories and Rich is going to show us how the final uh, seven pages turned out. Too bad of a little bit of foresight. They could have reeled Captain Dracula back in for the Creature Commandos about, you know, 100 issues from now. But, oh, but dear whatever. God, man, I am going to keep going back to this in my <laughs> mind. Like uh, this was just waiting for me. Uh, oh my God. So you got to stop me now. 
that's why I let you have that story. <laughs> I'm like, this has Max written all over it. Anyway, part two, story two, whatever number two this is. Whim of a Phantom, seven pages, written by Sheldon Mayer, art by Jerry Teleoc. German forces are pushing back the French in World War I and have captured the monastery de Brion. General Eric Pilsdorf wants it to be his headquarters, despite the fact it's supposed to be haunted and orders Colonel Kurt von Zoll to prepare the building for him to move into. Von Zoll is unhappy at always being bossed around by Pilsdorf, especially after being ordered to the wine cellar to look for fine champagne. He thinks back to their time together as students at Heidelberg. Pilsdorf had reined in his advances towards an innkeeper's daughter. There was an argument, a challenge was made, and a duel fought at dawn with sabers. Pilsdorf fought well, but von Zoll managed to disarm him. He should have killed Pilsdorf then and there, claiming the heat of battle, but he was a gentleman and allowed Pilsdorf to pick up his weapon. The duel ended in a draw. It rankled von Zoll that the son of a mere baron now outranked him, the count that had formulated his battle plans. The war will soon be over and he'll never have had a full command. Something must be done. He fashions a booby trap that he will plant in Pilsdorf's room. The French will be blamed and he will have his command. At that moment, a hooded ghost appears and tells Von Zoll that although the bomb will work, it's so unimaginative. At the moment, our desires are identical. Concentrate. Think of what you desire most, and it will be yours. Von Zoll finds himself back at the duel, fighting Pilsdorf. The ghost assures him that this is not a dream, that he is actually back in time. Do you want to change your life, or don't you? This time, when Von Zoll disarms Pilsdorf, he doesn't hesitate, and he kills him. Suddenly, it's 1915 again. The spirit tells Von Zoll his life is different now. With no Pilsdorf, Von Zoll thinks he's in command and runs upstairs to put his plans into play. He's shocked to discover he is only a mere sergeant and runs back downstairs to confront the specter. The phantom tells Von Zoll his life is different. He was expelled from Heidelberg in 1885 after that disgraceful duel and disinherited by his father. He was lucky to be a sergeant, actually. Von Zoll realizes that without Pilsdorf, or even himself, the recent German victory will fall apart, which is what the ghost wanted. He rearranges his ectoplasm enough so Von Zoll can see who he once was. Napoleon. Architect of another great victory for France. Von Zoll will do anything to convince his superiors to give his plans a chance and starts to return upstairs, but steps on the booby trap he had constructed to kill Pilsdorf and dies in the blast. Mortal history has no record of any General Pilsdorf or of a Colonel Von Zoll. But had they lived, what then? History might have been very different, but for the whim of a fandom. <sighs> I love these these uh, word balloons that start and or finish these stories that just like, yep, I can do I can do some rod. Yep, I can do some rod. <laughs> I got a pseudo killjoy to throw at this. Um, I've, I've groused about pickle halb helmets in prior World War One stories, but since this one takes place in 1915, they were still in use in some places. So I got to give it a buy here. Uh, that said, I can pick on the hat Napoleon's ghost is wearing 
with this cheesy N on it. It's a simple trick. Tleak pulls so you know who the ghost really is. I looked. I can't find any references to Napoleon wearing a hat that looked like that. <laughs> it's kind of a time-honored comic book thing especially over in marvel like the first appearance of thor he's wearing a belt with a letter t on it you know from from not the norse alphabet or runes you know and uh you've got galactus with the big old g on his belt when he first appears it's just comic book shorthand so it's almost a nod in my opinion to how they do that in comics just like oh kids will know if we put a big capital n on his hat (laughs) (laughs) perfect so for my comments and commendations on this one you know people it's jerry talayak um the art in the story is absolutely gorgeous every panel every page design it it's just all perfect I'll, I'll single out, though, the opening splash panel as an example. It's like half of the first page of the story, and there's so much action in there, so many elements to analyze, but the way it's drawn and colored makes it really easy and attractive to look at instead of a big, confusing, jumbled mess, which it would be in a lot of other artists' hands. As for the story, well, we've had the Weird War Tales version of A Christmas Carol, and now we kind of have the Weird War Tales version of It's a Wonderful Life. In German, would that be Ist ein wunderbar life? I, I don't know. Uh, but nevertheless, God bless us, everyone. Yeah, we're, we're staring down the, uh, down the barrel of Thanksgiving when this is being recorded. I know we're staring down the barrel of like Valentine's Day when you people are listening to this, but hey, <laughs> it's interesting that the panel borderlines for the first flashback scenes on uh, page three are all soft and curvy like a cloud which are really neat, by the way. But in the trip back in time, the panel lines are all straight and standard. Uh, most of the colors in the past panels are pastel blue, purple, or green, including all the people, to further paint the picture that it's not 1915 anymore. So I liked the effort on that. Yeah, and I actually have a theory about that. I think I can explain that in, com- in comic book uh, mechanics here. The flashbacks... And and a lot of stories often have the uh, different panel border. It's either curvy or, you know, like you said, looks like a cloud or something like that. But in the other one, when they're going back in time, it's like that stuff is really happening. You know, so the memories have like the softer panel borders, but the stuff that's actually happening gets solid panel border. So that's kind of my, um, uh, again, crossing company lines. Uh, that's kind of my entry for a Marvel no prize on that one. So Beats while any I, theories, which I have, which are none. Yeah. So. Well, while I wait for my no prize to show up in the mail, uh, waiting, we'll go, we'll go to, uh, yeah, we'll go check some mail somewhere else where they actually got some and check out the APO Weird War Tales letters column. Hey, I'll go first and I'll take the letter that Max wanted. So, but we'll talk about this at, at, um, in length, no doubt. This is our teaser from last, at last episode. Ellie Ockert of Brooklyn, New York, brings up a bit of killjoy Max and I have brought up a few times in the pages of Weird War. Dear Joe, this is in reference to Weird War Tales number 13. The story, The Diehards. As I am very involved in the occult and vampirology, I am a Dracula fanatic and religiously, in quotes, followed the now defunct soap opera Dark Shadows, which was filled with ghosts, vampires, leviathans, etc. I found it necessary to point out an error in the story which destroys your whole plot. At the end of the story, the mayor tells the colonel that he and everyone else in the town is a vampire. Yet the mayor and the citizens of the town were walking out in the daylight, vampires being of the 
undead and therefore of darkness, cannot exist in the daylight hours. If one would go out into the daylight, it would disintegrate into dust and ashes. What's your explanation? <laughs> just comes right out and says, what did you do? I love it. P.S. My brother Leo would have written, but he was afraid to. He said to tell you that he's also a great fan of Weird War Tales. So yeah, so you just threw your brother Leo under the bus for being a coward. Awesome. So, so anyway, and Joe responds, Dear Ellie, if you've read Dracula, you shall know that the Count occasionally showed up in the daytime, but had no supernatural powers until sundown. Vampire legends vary on this point. We used a version closer to yours in this issue's lead story. P.S. Tell Leo not to be afraid to write. I love to receive letters from fans. So... Max, you are the uh, master of the occult among the two of us, are you? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> points to Joe Orlando for stretching that hard, but uh, vampire legends vary on that point in that that incident with Dracula and Bram Stoker's Dracula is the only time it ever happened. <laughs> so they do vary just to push up your glasses will actually <laughs> yeah so they vary in the sense that um that never happened again so yeah you use the one guy he didn't know that <laughs> there's no way he he was like crap let me see here oh wait okay dracula hey, there's a couple of passages where he's walking around in broad daylight and says he's not at full strength well one he is actually dracula so he's big daddy vampire and two nice try joe <laughs> like, g give me a break, man. Like, it's enough that, like I like I said earlier, you got uh, Captain Black there. Captain Drac uh, was like, I'll escape by jumping into that river. Boy, I wish he'd tried because <laughs> one of the other <laughs> weaknesses of, of vampires that they, this one, they've let go over the years. No one ever uses it, but they can't abide the touch of running water. So if he dropped into a river, he would have turned into so many loose bones. <laughs> You know, again, I'll give points to Joe for the reach. I'll allow that maybe there's other examples out there somewhere that, that talk about vampires walking around in daylight, but just being a little, feeling a little sick. <laughs> but um, uh, Joe doesn't mention any others but the one, and it's the only one I know of either. So, we're, we're both fans of Preacher, you know. <laughs> he always had to cover himself up with the coat and stuff when he's running yeah. around in daylight. Yeah, that was one of the funnier running gags in Preacher was um, his buddy there was Cassidy, right? Yeah, yeah, I couldn't remember his name. That's why I was like, yeah, the guy, the vampire. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not too many central characters in that one, but it's been a while since I've read Preacher all the way through. But yeah, the running gag of Cassidy covering up in the back of the truck, we wouldn't have had that if they decided to ignore that rule. So, ah, but it was nice. It was nice. There's a little bit of validation to uh, to see someone write in about that in an actual issue. Now, as far as... Uh, Addressing all of our killjoys. <laughs> yeah, at least someone finally spoke up about the vampire thing in, in some detail. So I'm, I've got a letter I'm, I'm going to pick out from a guy named Barry Nielsen. And his letter makes a great point about uh, this more supernatural title delivering a more realistic message about the horrors of war than other DC war books. So I'll, uh, I'll read his off right here. He says, Dear Joe, gimmick war comics have never really set well with this reader, partly because war comics are hokey enough when played straight. Some years ago, for example, one DC war comic had GIs running up against dinosaurs on lost Pacific islands every issue. These days, one tank commander shares his tank with a ghost. 
Stories like these, it seems to me, often distort the true horror of war and romanticize it a bit. I'm glad to see, though, that Weird War Tales, even though it is weird, is not letting the gimmicks get in the way of the message. Weird or not weird, set in old Japan or in World War III, war is the ghastliest enterprise ever conceived by man's mind. Your comic says this very well. Barry Nielsen, Los Angeles, California. Now, I'd say he makes a good point, but it's a little lost in the beginning, like with the examples he's using, like the War That Time Forgot stories and the tank commander, you know, the, the haunted tank. Those are still kind of weird war tales. Like, I think he would have had a stronger point if he just mentioned the not even borderline propaganda stories that filled the first seven issues of reprints of, of this very title. Now, those did some serious romanticizing of war. <laughs> Those were like recruitment posters with seven or eight pages to them. You know? Reef of no return. <laughs> yeah, you too can be a ridiculously incredible super soldier that can hold his breath for 25 minutes or whatever. You know, <laughs> like beat the crap out of scuba diving Nazis when you have no gear on. But, you know, I, I still I still get what he was trying to say. But as I was looking through the letter, I'm like, man, you you know, the war that time for God and haunted tank, they kind of belong in weird war tales. And, you know, I'm pretty sure the few haunted tank stories I've read, they do at least try to talk about how war isn't that great a thing. So I'll give Barry points on, on effort here, but execution a little bit off. Still yeah. nice to see someone try to address it. Yeah, actually, um, Joe did answer Barry. Um, he said, uh, that tank commander with a ghost is one of DC's most popular characters, you know, and Weird War Tales is doing pretty well, too. So maybe gimmicks work. As to your second paragraph, I can say only amen. Yeah, I get that. And I feel like that's kind of a cop out answer on Joe's part. I mean, the first part of his answer, like, well, it's popular. Well, that's not making really, us money. Yeah, it's not really the point that was being offered up for discussion. But again, Joe's just doing the editorial dodge there. I feel like Hubert would have uh, had a more uh, snappy comeback as he Hubert always did. <laughs> he always did. Joe was more diplomatic and you know, it is one hell of an editor. Like I've always said, he's he's not just responsible for a lot of this comic, but he's he was the editor of House of Mystery, House of Secrets, all my all more of my favorite books. So he's just he's a nicer guy, which okay. I see as a weakness sometimes. Big surprise. <laughs> um, <laughs> so letters page out of the way. We are gonna move on to spotlighting some ads in this issue. And I'm gonna go first because quite frankly, Rich took my ad you so <laughs> <laughs> i do i do but i'm not going to so on the page right after rich's ad though there is a great house ad for three titles uh by dc that also feature perhaps also features perhaps the most disturbing image in this entire book you got korak son of tarzan and the ad for Black Magic, those are fine, but there's an ad for Shazam at the bottom of the page that features a photo of a human baby sitting in the hand-drawn Captain Marvel's lap. And the effect it has in the end, considering the printing process and the, the photo paste-up technology back then, in the end, it's probably not the effect that the creators of the image intended. It looks like I just found a missing child who somehow ended up trapped in the pages of a comic book, like some Twilight Zone episode, but it's kind of disturbing, man. So since, since you took the ad of the issue, I, I, I was casting around and then that Shazam issue jumped out at me and I'm like, what, what am I looking at? <laughs> yeah. 
it's it, it, it's funny you 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 picked this ad so I, I i was looking at the ad a little bit closer and i'm like okay this this requires a little bit more research so i actually went on to one of those um comic cover websites and i was looking for this specific issue uh, shazam number six and what the cover is is you know it, the full cover is he's sitting in a rocking chair with with you know the kid in his lap reading the same comic that the cover is of and it's got um, two kids you know sitting at his feet on a circular rug looking up at him like he's as he's reading the comic so there's actually three kids on the cover which makes it slightly less creepy from the just the the cutaway that you see for the uh, for the ad itself but still kind of, uh, you'll, you'll see it in the album. <laughs> yeah. And I forgot, you can even kind of tell in that, that mini ad in the mini part of the house ad that it's sort of an infinity cover too, which is even creepier in my opinion. <laughs> so anyway, like I said, the, uh, the advantages of doing the scripts is I get first crack at letters, first crack at ads. So yeah, golden age comic strips, they're back. Your favorite rare golden age comic strips are back in a weekly adventure newspaper. Buck Rogers, starting with the very first. Superman, Terry and the Pirates, Tailspin Tommy, Mandrake the Magician, Prince Valiant, Dick Tracy, Brick Bradford, the Cats and Jammer Kids, and more. Each a full newspaper page on good white paper, perfect for reading and collecting. Complete stories in serial form. So... Yeah, yeah, I saw this. I'm like, yeah, it's mine. Uh, <laughs> uh, back in 1986, I received a coffee table sized book as a gift, the Smithsonian Collection of Newspaper Comics that reprinted strips from 1896 to today. I, I still have it, actually. Big shock. It was about 20 bucks back then. It's probably be at least twice that today. This is actually the kind of thing I might have cut the coupon out from the comic book to try. Like so, there's only that Shazam ad <laughs> on the flip page. It would invoke the curse of Shazam. Yeah, these rare Sunday comic strips are hard to find in any condition, and if you should find them, you probably could not afford to buy many. We have invested thousands of dollars into complete stories in perfect condition, and will begin reprinting them on, in a weekly newspaper format on June 1st, 1973. The feature we are proudest to present is Buck Rogers, which will begin the very first Sunday strip. These early Buck Rogers are the most beautiful and have never been reprinted before. All comic strips will be reprinted in the order they appeared, missing none. Since this is, will be on quality paper, you may want to buy the subscriptions or more. One to read and the others to give out and bind into volumes. Okay, sure. Just 25 cents an issue will give you about $30 worth of strips. You more, of course, for the early Buck Rogers strips, which go for $10 to $20 each. No hard sell here, kind of sounds like. This new project will sell itself. I hope you'll subscribe soon, though. You wouldn't want to miss these early installments. Please rush me my subscription. <laughs> Dinah Pub's Golden Funnies, East Moline, Illinois. Okay, so there's one thing I, I couldn't remember and I had to actually ask you on this. Um, there was, what was that, Wednesday Comics? It was, it was that thing that DC put out. Was it about 10, 
15 years ago. Uh, yeah. th- this kind of reminded me of this. And I, I was on that because I think it was like a Sergeant Rock story and like a USS Stevens story was in that. So I was on board for those for a little while. Yeah, so. Wednesday Comics. I, I subscribed to that when it was coming out in its original format. There's there's a pretty cool hardcover collection of it out there now, uh, oversized and everything. But I, I had to get it in that unfolding newspaper format. It was probably one of my favorite things DC has done in the past 20 so 20 or so years at least sure as hell was different jeez it was amazing i wish that had gone on forever but of (laughs) course it did not Um, just no continuity needed jump in let the creators go nuts you had a kyle baker hawkman story in there just anything went you know you had um an amazing metamorpho story, Commandy. It's just I, I had to make sure I wasn't imagining the whole thing. <laughs> so tailor made to everything I wanted to see them try to publish. And then of course they ended it. Well, it was probably a raging pain in the ass to be able to store it on the shelves and stuff like that. All the shops like, oh, what the hell are we going to do with this damn thing? And because it was neat and unique, the numbers for it probably suck too. So yeah, yeah, reality. So <laughs> who needs that? But um, what I'll say about this ad. Is it was unclear to me, and I, if anyone out there knows anyone who who tried to subscribe to these, it was unclear to me reading the ad how many pages each issue of Golden Funnies was going to be. Is it just each issue's one big page that collects a week's worth of that strip? Are there multiple pages? I, I couldn't even tell from reading that, but I I would have tried it back in the day if I if I had been a little older and seen this book when it actually hit the stands for the first time. I, I would have been clipping that out too. That that, that thing just has has my name written all over it and would have if I was six when I saw it, you know, just <laughs> that, that thing is, is golden, so to speak. I, I, it's, it's perfect. I, I want to see those things right now. <laughs> so with that champion ad out of the way, uh, we're going to move on to a section we like to call got any last words. Yeah. I pretty obvious. I liked this book, a solid cover, two solid stories, a solid letters page, some good ads, and only one tiny killjoy? I can't not have something to bitch about. Captain Dracula gets the story win here. A vampire tale that actually follows the rules. Yep, great issue. Uh, even if the cover left me a little bit flat, the stories were fantastic. Almost dead even. Uh, but the art in the second one, just for me, purely on a, a matter of taste, pushes it just barely in the first place for me. But they're neck and neck. And this was well worth whatever you plunk down for it. This is a great issue of Weird War Tales. So we're on the upswing again, people. And speaking of uh, people chiming in on things, we're going to take a look over to the Dead Letter Office, where we try to mention people who have given us some love on social media, you know, like, shares, retweets, all that kind of stuff. And this one uh, is for people who had something to say about episode 15 which was our second special mission covering Twilight Zone number three from Gold Key Comics. So over on Twitter, we got likes and so forth from our buddy Luke Giaconetti from an account called Fuzzy Bear and Friends, which seems incredibly appropriate to me. I love that, that Fuzzy Bear and Friends is listening to the Weird Warriors podcast. We got Professor Frenzy of the Professor Frenzy show, Alan Middleton of the Relatively Geeky Network, We've got Chris at BTO and Bat Books, who is also from the Professor Frenzy show. We got our buddy Packed Cells. We're always uh, always good to see him around. And uh, Iowa's Joe is here. We've got something from FP Glasgow. Marvel Out of Context, 
another great comics out of context style Twitter account to follow for uh, fun panels to print out and pin to your cube if you're like me. And uh, we got Into the Weird chiming in here. We got, you know, Billy D and Herman from Into the Weird, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, The Telltale Mind. Kirk Spencer at Big Five Army, you know, one of our, our founding members. We got the Fan Film Fridays podcast with Clinton Robison and Sir Martin Gray of the uh, Too Dangerous for a Girl blog. If you want to keep in touch with what DC is currently publishing, you got to follow Martin's blog. It's, it's just no better source. And our buddies, the Checkered Chums from the Checkered Pass podcast, who we have actually teamed up with. We got Dr. Ange. The Long Box of Darkness, Herman from uh, Billy D's Into the Weird and A World on Fire, All-Star Squadron, uh, Star Rocket Radio. So many shows that I like, those two are responsible for. We got Wayne Burroughs, Billy D himself, Doctor Strange, and Martin Gray makes a comment on the episode here. He said, weirdly, Professor Allen recently did Twilight Zone issue two on Relatively Geeky. Mind you, it was the modern version or a modern version with a story by JMS, so it likely doesn't end uh, taking a little shot at Straczynski's propensity for walking away from stuff before it's finished in comics. And uh, Martin says, blimey, re Rod and his Siggy's habit. Probably got them for free from the sponsor. I, I think he was probably hooked long before the show ever started. <laughs> but, well, uh, well, well, back in the day, there were cigarettes in the, uh, in the ration packs you know, that they got in the military. So yeah, there'd be like, I think like two or two or three in a, in a, in a cigarette box or something like that. So you got to remember everyone freaking smoked back then. Everybody. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they're like, hey, something's probably going to kill you anyway. So have some, have some smoke. It's not, if it's not the Japanese, it'd be cancer in 20 years. <laughs> yeah, but I tell Martin, I, I caught that episode for sure. And, uh, you know, uh, Professor Allen covered, like uh, he said, it was a little bit of a more modern issue than the one we covered. It was from Now Comics, and I'd never read it. I've never read the Now Comics Twilight Zone series. So Allen certainly made me want to go out and get a copy, though. So again, people go find at Professor Allen on Twitter, go to the Relatively Geeky Network. They put out some great stuff. And Dave Steele is in here. Uh, he's from the Earth 2 podcast, and he says, another enjoyable sidestep. I hope you return to the Twilight Zone. <laughs> and I, I said, you know, I'd, I'd really like to. We would really like to. And Rich has got more issues. I need to get some more. I really want to, but I'm me, so I haven't done it yet. But I really want to start building up a gold key collection, as I mentioned. I got to say, uh, <laughs> you know, Billy D from Into the Weird stopped by and said, listening now. And he posted a version of that meme that has the guy having just delivered a sick burn and all his friends are running around holding their heads. But he replaced all the heads in the picture with pigeon heads in honor of the content of that Twilight Zone issue. So I thought that was a nice touch. That was extra effort I did not expect, man, but I should have because, you know, Billy D is out there. He's into the weird. So over on Facebook, uh, we got my buddy Ken Boutillier uh, down in sunny Florida. And we got Billy D himself. We got Joe Phillips, Rob Tim, Peter Watson of the Earth 2 podcast, and followed up by his buddy David Steele. We've got now, I'm going to try to say this correctly, but it's, I'm going to spell the first name. Uh, <laughs> J-O-A-O. -O. I don't want to mangle it because, uh, and his last name is Bacalao. Uh, it's B-A-C-A-L-H-A-W. 
H-A-U, sorry. Wow, I'm real bad at this. But I, I, I really want to uh, give our buddy JB here some props because he is a frequent liker of our Facebook posts, our photos and everything over there. And I think I've missed him in past episodes and he's really been engaged with us and is a really frequent visitor to the Facebook page. So, so JB, let us know how to say your name correctly. Uh, you know, admonish me because I deserve it. Yes. Yes, he does. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, f- uh, finishing up Facebook here, we've got Joe Crawford. Uh, Mr. Iowa's Joe from Twitter has found his way to the Facebook page and our buddy Lee Sullivan, who we're going to be getting to in a in a specific way in a future episode coming up. Now on Gmail, we got more emails from Jason Zeller, and I am not going to summarize them all this time around, but I, I always write back to Jason on his feedback. Jason, again, is going through our old uh, episodes in order, catching up. And as of this time around, he is already up to, I think, Weird War Tales number nine. So he's, he's moving up, people. He's leaving you all in the dust. He's going to catch up soon. And uh, like I said, you write into the Gmail and you'll get a personal response from me. I mean, isn't that incentive enough? Um, but you wanted people to write, to put me right in the Gmail. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it's, uh, you know, come on. You know, some people might enjoy it. Well, you have a point. So, <laughs> and, and Billy D also wrote us over at the Gmail address, not to, not to say that he hasn't chimed in too, but, but Jason Zeller is the champion of the Gmail inbox. We may come up with a no prize for that at some point, or maybe I just did. While I think about that, before I shoot myself further in the foot and give my thing, I'm give myself more things to do. We're going to wrap up the dead letter office and Rich is going to hit you with the teaser for our next episode. Weird war tales. Number 19. It's what you're here for. Tune in in two weeks for the full length battle tale of the platoon that wouldn't another full length story that's going to be awesome <laughs> Can't it's wait. actually a slightly different one this one is actually the whole book is one story it doesn't hop around you know telling different you know different aspects of a, of a longer tale like we've had twice already this is actually one full book length story yeah so, it doesn't have the big chapter breaks and it, it does have it is broken into chapters but it's just uh you know, pause the story a little bit. It keeps going. So, well, I'd I'd make a joke here and say, well, heck, why don't we just cover it all right now? But you would. So, <laughs> so the I fact that you haven't done your part of the script yet, <laughs> I haven't done my part of the script yet. So I would just, uh, well, you know, maybe people would dig that. I would just be quiet. So I just have to freestyle it, flip it the book frantically. Uh, I haven't read this yet. Uh. <laughs> I just make stuff up. <laughs> So until, <laughs> yeah, it would not be the first time I've done that. Uh, yeah, things other than this show, that's for sure. So until next time, when I totally will be prepared and have done my part, this has been the Weird Warriors podcast. We have been the Weird Warriors, and we promise to make war no more. No more.